wounds are infectious Like a dog scratched ear The pleasure is high Welcome to the Box Tunnel Survivors Group, a place for those affected by the issues raised in the TV show, Being Human. I've been such a bad boy. I've been so very naughty. I think I need to be spa, spa, what is that? Oh, sorry, that was supposed to be a message to my girlfriend. Welcome to the pod. In this episode, we discuss the pack with new recruit Ruby. That is coming up in just a moment. But first, I will just run through a little bit of cast watch. Yeah, it's a bit quiet in terms of casting news on the main cast of Being Human. But Russell Tovey has appeared recently on a podcast called Chatterbix. It's run by Joe Wilkinson and David Earl. I love this podcast. It's so meandering and funny and random. And I got into it quite a few months ago. They had a contestant called from Deal or No Deal called Paul Gorton. And they took about 10 or so episodes just to get through his episode of Deal or No Deal from God, like 10, 15 years ago. They go on such weird tangents and ask strange questions and it takes so long. But um, yeah, I got into it from that. Uh, Russell is, he talks mostly in terms of TV, talks about him and her, because obviously Joe Wilkerson appeared on him and her with Russell. Um, Russell talks a bit about his acting process, about learning lines and also it talks about his podcast Talk Art and making art a bit more accessible to the working class and just everyone in general. It's a really interesting listen and Russell was obviously on top form. He's very engaging and very warm and very funny. Uh, yes, that's Chatterbix. In terms of supporting cast from being human, there's actually been a couple of Things I've watched recently where they popped up. Dean Lennox Kelly is, if anyone is still watching Brassic, and I'm still loving it so much. Although Damien, I thought Damien would appear in the series. I'm five episodes in and he hasn't yet. He's playing a rat catcher, Dean Lennox Kelly. And he's, there's his character has a very similar feel to Lee Tully, actually, in a weird way. Yeah, he kind of ends up in someone's house against their will. And he's kind of a gentle giant, really. So it's just really funny. And he's he's absolutely brilliant. He's got a big, bushy beard. Big, great, big, bushy beard in it. And uh, yeah, Brassic Series 5 continues to be brilliant. And Simon Paisley Day pops up in the new series The Lovers on Sky. He hasn't got a massive role in it. But yeah, it's just like, hang on, it's Alan Cortez. The Lovers is incredible. I absolutely loved it. I binge watched it all in one night. It's six half hour episodes. It's a comedy drama, romantic comedy drama. But everything about it kind of takes you by surprise. Because all the standard romantic sitcom 
filmy elements have a little twist to them. There's a surprising political backdrop to it. It's very warm. It's very engaging. Even though the main guy is a bit of a dick, the standout performance is by Roisin Gallagher, who is absolutely incredible. Um, yeah, it touches on religion. It touches on class. But all wrapped up in this kind of almost fuzzy overall romantic sitcom. Uh, that's the lovers on Sky. I would fully recommend that. But yeah, um, Simon Pacey Day is kind of Simon's boss in the TV world. So that brings us on to the pack then, which is series three, episode four. It first aired on 13th of February 2011. It was directed by Colin Teague and written by Toby Whithouse and John Jackson. Uh, no real newbies, I guess, in this episode. Obviously, the main quartet. We've got Robson Green and Michael Sosha. Mark Lewis Jones reappears, and I guess the only new main, and I guess the only new character is Michelle Luther as Sadie in her very brief appearance. Here is my chat with a new recruit, Ruby McShane. Joining me for the Box Tunnel debut is Ruby. Welcome along. I'm so excited. Thanks for having me. Whereabouts are you? Because this is our first uh, stateside pod. Uh, whereabouts are you Are you based? I'm I'm on the West Coast. So it's 7 o'clock here and it's, it's 11 a.m. where you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess before we, we touch on the UK being human, I think it'd be remiss of me to, to not touch on the American version to start with, because where do you stand on the American version? Have you seen it at all? Or I have seen some amount of every season, but I just skipped around and watched the scenes that I liked because I, I really can't stand it. <laughs> okay. So you, you, I just... <laughs> you didn't stick with it all, but you, there's certain elements you... you... I must have liked certain elements to have watched some of it or yeah i mean i i just found, i think josh was the only trio character that i found likable so i i think i just watched his scenes mostly and josh um, was the werewolf yeah. yeah yeah but i just i just think most american remakes are completely unnecessary <laughs> they're just never as good as the original there is a strange thing to put a load of money and effort into recreating something that already exists. Do you think part of the reason it happens a lot in American TV is because maybe some of the culture differences, maybe they feel like the American audiences wouldn't understand? I think that's that's probably part of it. I think they just think that Americans only want to watch americans on screen mm. for whatever reason and i don't know why <laughs> that is because there's so much great you know great television outside of the u.s but i think that the people making those decisions seem to think that we only want to see americans <laughs> yeah I, I i guess i i get i think it's partly that and also i think maybe a cultural thing but then i know americans such as yourself, who do love a lot of British shows, because we spoke a bit the other day and you listed off a, a, a massive list of all the British shows you love. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I assume you don't struggle with, you know, different dialects 
or terminology because even like I watch some American stuff and some terminology I don't quite understand but it doesn't it won't affect the enjoyment as long as it's good story and a good show that that kind of thing doesn't matter does it people aren't going to switch off if there's one reference they don't get yeah and I think I mean if I do have any struggles understanding accents I could just turn on subtitles and that helps and if it's if it's a cultural reference maybe Sometimes I'll look it up, but I've definitely found that watching panel shows helps a lot with the cultural references. I feel like just, you know, Taskmaster and QI and those sorts of shows are really helpful for understanding slang and cultural references. Yeah, and it's also a thing. I just don't believe this thing that Americans don't get irony. They just do. (laughs) (laughs) It's a universal language irony. Definitely. um, Yeah, in terms of... I'm going to cover the US version, but I just don't know how I'm going to cover it because I've seen all of series one for a few years ago and maybe the start of series two. Mm. And everyone I know is kind of very wary of the American version. And I kind of, I kind of would like, a, you know, almost a couple of guests, one, one who's a bit like, nah, I don't like it. <laughs> and another person who's really positive about it, but I've not really known anyone who's been overly positive <laughs> I'm, they must exist yeah i'm sure I mean, they, they do they I made mean, four seasons <laughs> and it's got its audience but I, yeah of course i guess the i'm more in contact with people over here and i guess us british are quite cynical of american re- re- remakes just a bit like you are it's just a bit like why do we need to do it mm-hmm. um in terms of how you identify do you identify as a vampire a werewolf or a ghost Well, I think I'm not goth enough or cool enough to be a vampire. I think I'm not outdoorsy enough to be a werewolf, even if those are the, that's probably my favorite of the three types, but I think it would have to be a ghost. I think, I think being able to teleport that alone and just being able to go wherever you want, that sounds very appealing to me. Yeah. And also, you know, it's a quiet life, isn't it? People don't hassle you. Yeah. So you say like werewolves are more your favourite. What is it about werewolves? Because you obviously you like Josh in the American version. And who's your favourite character in the UK version? Oh, I'm. can it be a four-way tie <laughs> between Annie, George, Nina and Hal? <laughs> I can't decide. Well, I'm going to say werewolves win that because there's two werewolves. True, yes. <laughs> um, I think... I think it's interesting because you can be the most good person ever, but it's this thing that's going to happen to you that you have complete lack of control over where you know it's going to happen, but then it's just this total loss of control. And they definitely seem like the most powerful and dangerous of the three supernaturals in the show. So I think it's just that internal struggle that I find very appealing. Yes, I guess in terms of vampires, as it's covered in the show, they their battle is constant, whereas that dark side's mm-hmm. always lurching. But I guess with werewolves, it's it's such two extremes, especially in a character like George and Tom, that they're so kind and quite soft as as people, and then there's this vicious darkness that just unleashes once a month and like you say it can't be contained it can't you know it's 
they cannot stop that. So I guess it's those two extremes that play off quite well. Yeah. So how is it did you get into the show in the first place? Uh, so I was maybe 11 or 12 years old, and I just had this almanac of, I think it was just fun facts in general, maybe from that specific year. So maybe it was the almanac of 2009 or 2010. And there was just a blurb about the show, and I remember it had that the Series 2 cover mm. of them in the alleyway, and then it just had... Um, a description of what the what the show was and the the summary just sound it just sounded like the most perfect show ever um you know just exactly my kind of thing and so i remember watching it on netflix and and youtube definitely watching season 1 a lot and i think that's still probably my favorite season and then I didn't even know that there was a fifth season. I remember thinking that the end of the fourth season was the end of the whole show. Um, And then being very (laughs) excited to find that there was a whole other season to it. Yeah, I think season... I'm talking to an American now, I'm using the term season, where I usually say series. Um, I think (laughs) you, you could have easily left it at the end of series four, the way it ended. It was quite conclusive yeah it works as yeah, an ending but open-ended but also conclusive if it, if that was where it was to leave off mm-hmm. um you were very keen when when we were first in contact you were very keen to cover this episode the pack what what is it about the episode that draws you to it um yeah so this this is definitely a top five episode and i know that because i did r- try and rank <laughs> every single episode of the show so i know it's up there um I think I love the the Mitchell McNair dynamic and how they have to learn to kind of trust each other by the mm. end of the episode. Um I think it, it's really it seems like the one of the only very werewolf centered episodes like other than yeah. the Tully episode. I can't really think of another one on this level. No. I think I think there's a simplicity to the werewolf storylines that is is refreshing sometimes when you really after all these complex vampire politics i sometimes it just feels very refreshing to have oh let's just have some werewolf shenanigans for a change Um, and this brings in so many werewolves because you know there's an episode later where mitchell walks around the house and he just mumbles to himself, "There's three of them. There's three of them." It's just like it's just in despair, and that's that's. And this episode is where it starts, I guess. And it's a, a guess, and that's all also nudging a bit towards Mitchell's wool-shaped bullet story as well. So, but without mm-hmm. without like impending imp- too much on it, because this episode, yeah, like you say, it's the Tom McNair dynamic that is that is the backbone of it. Yeah, and I think. There's a lot of scenes of all the characters interacting as a group, which I always prefer compared to when they're more spread out. I mean, there's a lot of lack of communication among uh, the two. Main oh, there couples, always is. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I like that overall they're working somewhat together for most of the. Episodes. Yeah, that's true. When I was like, uh, when when I was coming up with how to do this episode, how to approach it. 
I thought, well, it's got to be pretty much scene by scene because they are pretty much around each other all the time and all their their, their storylines are so interlinked that it, it is quite a house set episode in a certain way. Yeah. Um, yeah, for me, it, it's really good that you've got that other differing opinion for me because for me, I'm not that mad on this episode. I like it, but <laughs> I, I feel like... Some of it's quite slow for me. Uh, some of the scenes are quite slow, so and some of the shots linger for quite a while. And whereas generally an episode will start quite slowly, 10, 15 minutes to set things up, it builds and builds up quicker and quicker towards the end, where we get a big end. Whereas this feels like it's quite slow throughout, and then the last 10 minutes are quite, quite full on, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. I guess yeah. I guess I just never felt that way. Oh no, but that's that's exactly what it's about. about it, it. It's about it is so. <laughs> you know, you're talking about compiling a list. I did this about two or three episodes ago. I thought, well, you know, I've done a bit over two series, and I thought I'm going to compile the list so far of where <laughs> the episodes ranked. And I think it quite surprised me the list that I came up with. So I think in a in a, but I don't. Six months time, I'll probably go back and go readjust the list. What we've done from series three and go well, and it's not quite where I thought it would be before going into this. So, and also like some episodes, I come out from talking about them, thinking, "Oh yeah, it is better than I thought." And some episodes maybe go down slightly in my estimation because because you know there's a plot hole or or something daft happens, and you think, and someone <laughs> points out to you, then you've never seen that before so yeah it's, it's all it's all good to have the different opinions yeah uh, okay so we'll start with scene one uh the pre-credits and it's mcnair with the hair uh 15 years previously transforming with tom in the woods and uh yeah so he's locking tom in the camper van so he doesn't run wild in the woods i don't know if this is a does he say something along the lines of maybe next month you can transform with me and your mum? I think it's maybe next month you'll be big enough to come with me. Oh, it's just with me because I can't remember if he, he said, said with with me and mum, me and your mum. But then I thought there's, I've obviously imagined that because obviously his mum died when Tom was a baby, and then I tried to get confused on the on the narrative was that the narrative that McNair gave him or is that the actual truth but we'll we'll, we'll get to that uh, <laughs> I think what always stands out about this scene to me is that it says it's 15 years yeah. ago but we know that we, Tom turns 21 in season 4 so he can't be more than 20 in the present yeah. so that means that he's supposed five. to be 5 in this scene and that doesn't seem right yeah I feel like there's a little bit of inconsistency i'm assuming they just hadn't decided how old tom yeah. was going to be um also in the woods in the current time george and nina are trying to track mcnair down in a very george line of i have three tracking badges on my woggle i don't do loss <laughs> uh, george is onto the scent and tom is watching on and alerts mcnair with the less hair this time uh, that they are on their way. And things don't change in this dynamic because he bundles Tom back into a camper van to hide him away this time from oncoming people. 
back at Honolulu Heights, though, there's some awkward smooching on the bed between Annie and Mitchell as she provides commentary on every kiss and touch she plants on Mitchell's very tense body. No flow is happening, and Mitchell asks for a hug instead. Uh, oh, the gro- gross kissing <laughs> sounds. It's a... Uh, I guess this is kind of a thing that's not very explored much in television, where their couple aren't quite sure of their connection. It, it, it might be one or two awkward scenes and that's it, but like for most of this series, Annie and Mitchell like mentally and physically just aren't they're not communicating right and it's all awkward and it's just (laughs) yeah this scene just it made me feel like i was watching siblings kiss almost it just felt so wrong because their relationship has been so close for so long but it's never been physical and it just seems like now that it's romantic they have this assumption that okay now we have to have a physical relationship and we have to have you know sex to to elevate the relationship when you know why why do they need to, yeah, I to think do that <laughs> part of it is explained later with, with when Mitchell says you know what sex is to him but I also think a part of it mm-hmm. is you know they are they have been friends for a couple of years and I think Mitchell's holding back partly because of that too because it, it to him it feels weird doesn't it i think yeah. what we have here is like a battle between their natural chemistry and mitchell's conscience as well though because i don't know the earlier barriers to a relationship are always fated to be a challenge if you're a vampire and you're a ghost that's enough of a barrier but then you know <laughs> he's got the conscience about the box tunnel m- murders he's He's got this hang-up on sex that is just about power and blood. And then there's Annie just being naive and just thinking that almost that they can be a normal couple. Maybe that's the the friction there. Yeah, I just think that it, it overall the relationship feels so forced. And I think this episode does a really good job of having a parallel between them and George and Nina, where George and Nina have had three seasons... Mm to build their relationship. They, we've seen the ups and downs. They've gotten together, they've broken up, they've gotten back together, they've broken up. Now they're having a baby and it just, I think it really, the, the, the contrast between the two couples makes Annie and Mitchell's relationship feel even more forced and sort of a little bit more yeah. superficial. Yeah, at least I, to I me. guess, I mean, I think it's probably a brave thing for them to be approaching the relate the writers to be approaching the relationship like this, in the sense that it is a bit awkward and they don't know quite what to do, rather than them just going straight into a relationship and it all being normal. But also, is that partly why a lot of us as viewers feel that Annie and Mitchell didn't quite work as a couple? If you forget all the fallout at the end, because a lot of the early stages are like this. So it makes us feel uncomfortable and it makes us go, this isn't right. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Back in the woods, George and Nina chance on the camper and an intimidating McNair causes George to babble. Tom makes a noise from inside and they admit that they are werewolves and need help. And George tries to talk to the person inside and McNair, with the less hair, threatens them with an axe. <laughs> Curiously, Nina, 
offers this madman their contact details, including, as we find out later, their address. Is, is this another case of Nina unwittingly causing trouble? Like the Nina butterf- butterfly effect of just, like, everything she does, no matter how well-intended it is, always seems to cause trouble. <laughs> I think she's just desperate, you know? I think if she hadn't have, have given them the address, then they may never have gotten back in contact with them. And I think I think what really needs to happen is just communication. <laughs> they just need to tell Annie and Mitchell what's going on, tell them about the baby, tell them what they're worried about, <laughs> and say, oh, there's two werewolves who may be showing up to our house, yeah. just so you know. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, again, th- this next scene is entirely down to no communication. Because uh, things are going a bit loco down at Honolulu. As Annie draws up a list of sexy time with Mitchell. It involves heavy petting and dirty talk. And her dirty talk involves, I've been a very naughty girl. I need to be spanked. <laughs> and when forced desperately, Mitchell asks, what have you done? Oh, bad, bad things. Naked things in the mud. Fighting my lesbian twit. And I just love Mitchell's expression throughout of just like, what is happening? Why am I in this situation? And it, it very much seems like it's what she thinks he'll like. It's this, you know, a very generic sort of male fantasy of, oh, you know, lesbians, when instead yeah, of actually asking that him That may be what a gen- generic wants. male fantasy. Not in the mud. <laughs> <laughs> Where's she got that from? Maybe maybe it's so then they can, you know, hose themselves off is wow. was the you, idea. You've clearly thought about know. this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she sits on his lap and calls him daddy and in walk Gina, George and Nina. And it's all cringe. It's all totally awkward. Um, Annie says they're doing ventriloquism. And it, it it's only just worked out when I had the subtitles on for this, that she, what she's saying. When she does this expression, she goes, got a gear, got a gear. No, I never knew what she I, was saying. <laughs> she's saying, got a gear, which is apparently in ventriloquism, saying bottle of beer is really hard. Maybe because it's the burr oh. and the burr of it. It's really hard. So apparently that's quite notoriously hard to say as a ventriloquist. So she was trying doing a pretending to say bottle of beer. Uh, which I never knew. I okay. never knew that. I just thought she was just garbling. <laughs> I I find ventriloquism horrible anyway. It just creeps me out. <laughs> All the weird looking puppets and I just don't find it funny. No, I don't. Yeah, it's just, it's very dated. <laughs> I don't think people, I don't know if anyone still does it now, but it just it seems like a very dated sort of bland humor and th- yeah the puppets are so scary yeah some of them are really creepy yeah <laughs> um so there they're all lying i love the little reference that george gives to Smokey and the bandit a film that was inflicted on me so much when i was younger so they say they've been nina and george say they've been shopping and going to the cinema and they're saying they're doing ventriloquism and they're just giving each other really weird looks and i think this is another one of those scenes where i think maybe all those looks go on a bit too long. Although I like the the cut to... Is that the scene where it cuts to Annie smiling? Where everyone's yeah, looking awkwardly yeah, yeah, yeah. at each other? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I like that. 
All right, so we go to McNair with the less hair and he's shopping with Tom. We get an inkling that Tom fancies Nina. He suggests they might be their pack and cues Tom's weird relationship with bees because uh, Tom uh, McNair says, you're like a bee and you're looking for a flower. It's nature, Tom. And it's just an awkward dad chat about the birds and literally the bees. Yeah, I like the fact that they, if we're talking about progression of character with Tom and baby's age isn't quite right. But the fact that they, in series four, give Tom a, a, a big speech about the birds, about the bees, when he chats up Michaela in the in the thing. Yeah, that is my favorite. It's just a line. nice little t- <laughs> onward touch from that, which is it. It seeks to give one. Yeah, and this is sort yeah. of the origin. <laughs> McNair's to blame. Uh, in the attic, Mitchell fetches the scrapbook of wonder from the floorboards, and as he does so. On the dollhouse, he sees letters that have framed, have formed the words "wolf shaved bullet." I, I always, I'm not quite sure about this scene. Is this a figment of his imagination, or it, I don't think it's Leah, because I think Leah has been communicating him through technology, through TV and radio. I, I don't think it's the menistics of ropes, because this has nothing to do with them. So, is it just? Like uh, signify for the audience to say he's paranoid. I mean, my first guess was that it was Leah, but then I I wasn't sure if she could interact no, with the physical world, and then I thought maybe maybe she sent another ghost to do it. But so I think it's definitely possible it's just his imagination. But I think when it's a supernatural show and it could be a ghost, it's hard to tell if something is a ghost or just yeah. imagination. I had a small theory for a while, years ago, but it doesn't really hold up, that the attic was a place of supernatural energy of its own. And it and it, I, it doesn't oh. really hold up if you think about it, but if you analyse it, a, a, more episodes along the way. But obviously in series five, they meet that kid up in the attic, although he was haunting the whole mm. house. And also... Uh, Herrick's behaviours later in the series is quite weird in there. And I think it, in my mind it all stemmed from this but it doesn't really it would have been good, it would have been a good little touch but it doesn't really match up. Yeah, I mean I can I can, I can go with, along <laughs> with that. <laughs> I don't think there's any There's, I mean there is there really any evidence against that theory? You know, like, it, it could be. It could be possible. Um, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to keep an eye out on the next few episodes of anything that happens in the attic. So Annie walks in on a flustered Mitchell as he scurries to hide the book. She asks why he doesn't want George George and Nina to know about them, and he diverts this back onto her in true Mitchell way. She's doughy-eyed and thinks it's fate, and they're together, that they're together, which sends Mitchell into an outburst. Oh, come on, that's crap. Life's about what you do, not some fucking... And he pauses, regains his composure. I mean, not us. I just think you need to make things happen. And she says, well, whatever you want to call it, I think someone has plans for us. And in this moment, they both know it's Leah because Mitchell's met Leah and his plan, he thinks, is the wolf-shaped bullet. And Annie's met Leah, but her idea of the plan is that they're ending up together as a couple. So they both know they've met Leah, but they don't know each other have met Leah and She's playing them off, almost. Yeah, I guess I never realised that they both Mm. meet her separately. 
But I, yeah, I think it seems like Annie thinks that talking about fate is a romantic thing right now. But for Mitchell, that's a very scary yeah, thing Annie, to think I, about. Annie fate thinks of it as of a positive, and, he, and Mitchell thinks of it as an, his impending death, really. <laughs> yeah. So in the dead of night, we see Tom creep in and prop a sculpture next to Nina's bed. And Mitchell catches him sneaking back out. Cue punches a broken glass and strangulation. But McNair interrupts him. Uh, McNair is offended that they've got a vampire for a friend. And uh, Mitchell screams, why are they here? Who are they? Why are they here? (laughs) I'm I'm stopping short of doing the accent this time. And Nina shouts, because I'm pregnant. And Mitchell's mood suddenly changes. Yeah, I love how happy they are. (laughs) And how Annie is so excited to be a babysitter. <laughs> I mean, that that literally comes way too true. It, oh yeah, <laughs> and I think I think McNair is right to not trust a vampire, but he's the one breaking into yeah. someone else's house. So, I mean, <laughs> they could have just not. Yeah. Also, in terms of the baby storyline, I'm always interested because obviously we don't know how things would have panned out. Like, where could they have gone with a baby storyline other than it was a little werewolf? Because if it was... I mean, we we know it wasn't a werewolf because... But if George and Nina had stayed in the show, the natural progression for it would have been to be a werewolf, I would have thought. Yeah, I've seen other shows have that, but I was always so glad that eve Mm. was human (laughs) just because i think and i think i think the the american remake you can be born a werewolf because i remember there's some baby werewolf baby shower (laughs) episode (laughs) but uh i think if you're born a werewolf it sort of takes away the interesting aspect of being a werewolf because it's all you've ever known which i mean we see that with tom Mm. but I like the way that they subvert um, the idea that he was born a werewolf. But I think, you know, if you become one, then you've lost your old life. And there's more of a of a of a struggle there. There's more of an internal conflict. Whereas if if that's all you've ever known, I don't know what you can really do with that as a storyline. Yeah. I mean, a lot of reason why Tom's like he is, because it's it's pretty much all he's ever known isn't it so that's why mm-hmm. that all that naivety and, and aloofness with the world but um whereas george yeah he got it in his 20s and george and nina are similar in the sense that they've got a lot of lived experience and they can cope better with society i suppose yeah uh, and also at the end of the scene i do love mcnair's stare at Mitchell. You don't go near him as he saunters out of shot. I love it. It's just so moody. <laughs> I also think a bit of the inconsistency which has never really been picked up with, with uh, McNair and Tom is, is the accents. <laughs> yeah, I always wondered about that. <laughs> no, it's, it's just like, no one mentions it. It's like, don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, it's not an inconsistency, I suppose, because he he ultimately isn't his dad, but yeah. And I guess... You would think that they would sound more similar because he grew up 
That's true. With McNair, yeah, yeah. so yeah. Okay, so Nina is upstairs patching up Tom and pressing for answers. Tom says he was born a werewolf. Tell them, Dad, how the curse is really a blessing. And McNair goes into speech mode. You know when your bones break, they mend harder. And when your skin tears, it'll heal tougher. The curse, it doesn't hurt you. It makes you stronger. To which George replies in his only way with a really naive, Oh, well, that's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is sort of a new idea for George. The idea of it being a blessing and making you stronger. I mean, he's sort of used... I mean, when he killed Herrick, he used it to his advantage. But overall, I don't think this is something that... (laughs) No, I think at the start, I think at the start of series two, he was of that mindset, wasn't he? Because he was very charged up on it, but that soon dissipated. Yeah, by the end of the season, I think he was kind of closer to his season one ideas. Uh, Nina clocks the scars on the back of Tom's head and back. Uh, in the kitchen the next morning, George is worrying about how much of a dad and a footballer he'll be, but Mitchell has more immediate concerns about why the wolves are there. I don't think they're off a fay with the whole domestic protocol thing, George says. They just wanted to help. They're like overzealous midwives. <laughs> Mitchell is wary for obvious reasons, and his concerns over Tom's hormones, let's say, might be true, as he wanders in, fresh from the shower, half Half naked but covered in George's robe. The stare between Tom and Mitchell, to me, is quite an early incarnation of Tom and Hal's first interactions. Is <laughs> that both staring at each yeah. other like, you're a vampire, you're a wolf, I hate you. <laughs> I like I like that hint of of Tom becoming the new George because he's literally yeah. wearing... George's clothing never, in yeah, that scene. I've not viewed it that way, <laughs> and, but yes, I mean, uh, what with what ultimately happens, yeah. And I also think that there's a lot in this episode that I think makes me think of all the potential timelines that could have happened in being human. Say, you know, that look between Tom and Mitchell if Mitchell had stayed, would there have been a dynamic between them? If Nina had stayed, oh yeah, you know, how would she have felt with how trying to get into the house? She would have bloody hated it. You know, all these different dynamics because you never know where the, these things could have ended up. Especially because Tom's a focal point of this episode and he becomes a char- the main character in series four. This is an early prototype Tom, so Obviously, when Toby and the team are writing this, they don't know where they're going in series four, so it's all open to interpretation. But yeah, I I just think of all the possibilities that could have happened. And that's, you can get that with any TV show, obviously, you know, cast changes, writer changes, what, you know, whatever. But I think being human in particular, because it has so many characters in it, it could have just gone in so many different places. Yeah, definitely. I think it's nice to to imagine what could have been but then sometimes it just makes me sad Mitchell isn't going to the hospital as he's saying he's stalking out McNair with the less hairs camper van he breaks in they address this later why he can get into the the camper van and finds a place full of dangerous weapons and a bracelet of vampire teeth we all have one I thought that 
that McNair never took that off, but I guess I just I feel like I always he always seems to be wearing it, but so I was a little surprised that he just keeps his tooth necklace well, maybe, in the maybe band. Maybe he's got a few on the go. <laughs> True. Or maybe he just doesn't want to wear it to <laughs> yeah, the grocery store. Yeah, it would store. be a bit inconspicuous, wouldn't it? Just <laughs> <laughs> be like, yeah, I've just been to the dentist. Just got a whole new set of teeth. These are my old ones. <laughs> but they're all canines. <laughs> uh, at the hospital, Nina has Tom in for a checkup. Uh, we get Tom's backstory or the narrative that he's been fed. That he, they were attacked by vampires and his mum was killed in the chaos. Nina asks how old he was, and he says just a baby. Um, yeah, so I think I was wrong. I think maybe McNair early did just say, "You you can join me next month, mm-hmm. not me and your mum." But yeah, I find this version of Tom very interesting because obviously, while series four Tom still has that naiveness and shyness to him, in series three he's, he's very much more subdued in his personality but I guess that you know can, you could argue that's come around from just hanging around McNair all his life yeah I think it's hard to upstage McNair I think having both characters in the episode McNair is just going to automatically be the the one who stands yeah. out more and I think I think the Tom that we see in season four is a post McNair Tom who's learning to be more independent, so he's you know still the same character, but that's he's it. I, I think different. yeah, I think genuinely a lot of that is down to character development because obviously he's affected by what happens in series three, um, and he, I guess he's more hardened and cynical to as much as he can be cynical, hardened and cynical to those experiences. Yeah. Um, but yeah, George, bless him, being a bit gullible believes it all uh but nina cuts through it as all cuts through it as usual uh the checkup was a pretense she was checking dental records blood samples and any missing persons reports i like i like how she has that line where she says because it's inside me i need to be sure just the, the the even if it's just this small scene i like how the show acknowledges that of course she's going to be the one who's more worried because she's the one who's actually pregnant. <laughs> At Honolulu, McNair is questioning why Annie is with a vampire. She says, my first boyfriend took naked pictures of me when I was asleep and put them on the internet. My second boyfriend got drunk and asked my mum for a threesome. That is, that is a line I've always <laughs> overlooked. I've never noticed that bit of the line. <laughs> I've, never re- I've never clocked that it, it's my mum for a threesome. <laughs> and my third boyfriend pushed me down the stairs and killed me so I think a vampire is pretty much marriage material given my track record and Mitchell skulks in and he offers tea to which McNair says lovely girl triggering, triggering a response from Mitchell you don't talk to her you don't even look at her what are you doing here really did somebody send you for me and a look of disgust covers McNair's face vampires and their vanity you spilt my boy's blood, so I'm going to spill yours. Mitchell then unveils a big fuck off steak out of nowhere. How's he just? How's he been hiding that on him? And stabs it rather inelegantly into the sofa. I love the blocking in this scene of how close McNair yeah. is to the camera, where it really shows how he has this imposing presence in the house. And then I think 
at the end of the scene, I think as they're talking, Mitchell comes really close to the camera too. So it's like he's trying to trying to size up to control. Him, yeah. yeah, it's it's very interesting yeah. direction because yeah, it's it's kind of like hovering above McNair's head really. So it's like he's the superior person in the scene, and it makes for most of the scene, even though he's waving around a big bloody stake, it makes Mitchell look quite small. Yeah. And then he has that line where McNair says that, that Annie's lucky, or M- Mitchell's lucky that Annie's mm. already dead, so then he won't kill her, which is honestly a really good mm. point. <laughs> like, I know they, they view them themselves as being sort of incompatible because Annie is dead, and so they have a hard time being physical, but the fact that he can't kill her is seems like a bonus. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess with all the stuff going on in Mitchell's head, he's not he's not referring. He's, he can't contemplate that, though, can he? He's, he's just more. His, his conscience is just overweighing everything. Uh, McNair says, "How did you get in there?" And he says, "Little factoid for you: mobile homes don't count." Must be something to do with all the jitsus you used to munch on in Transylvania. I've never been able to work out. And he leans in and he says, I want you out of my house. Uh, McNair responds, McNair's a stubborn bastard. I'm coming for you, pal. You can't outrun me. You definitely can't fight me. You can't even outlive me. And I love it's It's such a powerful little square off between the two, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And it's all that added sub- subtext of Mitchell thinks he's going to be got by a wolf as well, so it's that extra edge to it too. Yeah, I love all their scenes together and just the conflict that they have. This leads to Mitchell going back to Richard and his wonderful carpets. Uh, He finds him at his house and he says, the old ones didn't take kindly to you declining their offer. There may be repercussions. And Mitchell says, I'm not here to talk about that. As a way of making up for the mongrels, as he says, taking Adam from them, he says there are rumours of dogfights happening again and that he knows of a dog. He offers up McNair's location under the provision that they leave George, Nina and Tom alone. I can't believe that Mitchell actually trusted that they would agree to this, that they would only take McNair. Because he's really just putting all of them in danger by doing this. And it's just purely... Self-preservation. Self-preservation. Yeah. I, th- yeah, I think a lot of series two and series three certainly are is self-preservation for Mitchell. Is every every behavior is a selfish one, isn't it? I, I mean, yeah. that's until the very end. The self-preservation where he just gives up, <laughs> essentially. But yeah. <laughs> He gives up the fight of self-preservation, but yeah, all his actions are causing. I mean, the next episode, the longest day, is a key example of that. Like, the the falling out inside mm. the house is both Annie and George turn on him because they can see how selfish he's been. Right. Um, yeah. So in the woods, Tom is questioning the world around him uh, and McNair's role in it in particular. Why do they have to leave? Why are they going to kill Mitchell? I just wanted to ask if you if you caught the name the the name Galvin. that um that Tom says that of the other Yeah. Did do you remember who that that's the the guy who well, explodes? Yeah, I did wonder that, but is 
do they call him Mr. Galvin? But then that might have just been Kemp being formal. Yeah, I think I think Kemp says Mr. Galvin, and then Tom is saying Galvin just as in the in, same way, just calling in the same way that Tully was called last by his name. Last but name. I, yeah. So I just assumed that that yeah. was that has to be the same. Yeah, no, I I, I made guy, that connection right? too. I just but love I wasn't that little detail. One hundred percent on it. But I think Toby does like to link certain names and characters meeting separately off screen. So it is highly likely that it was meant as him. Yes, so from the woods to the club, Annie and Mitchell are in a pickup joint. She tells him her plan because she can taste his drink through touch. She says, you pull a girl, I hold her hand. Whenever you feel her, I feel you through her. And she says, definitely no blondes, but whoever you like. I think we see more of this sort of thing with Lady Mary in season five with touching people's heads and yes, yeah, feeling yeah. things. But I'm assuming that this, I think this is, this is what Annie learned from Sykes, I think. Yeah. And then there's the scene when she's, she's feeling George's yes, head as he's, as he's eating and she can sort yeah, of taste yeah. it. So I, it seems like this is sort of an extension of Yeah. Of she's that, just taking it to the next level. <laughs> <laughs> In more sedate surroundings, George is thinking up baby names. What about Gina, a combination of George and Nina? And Nina drolly observes it's better than Norge. They then touch on Annie and Mitchell's relationship, of which Nina clearly doesn't approve. Colour me shocked. Uh, When she is pushed for a reason, she says, well, let's see. She's a Sagittarius and he's a 117-year-old mass murderer. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, she's right. And I, I can't believe that George hasn't told her a, that he knows that Mitchell is responsible for the massacre. And then he he's calling her out for saying this when she's just saying exactly what's true and what he knows to be true. But I think he's just he just can't find himself to to accept it. He just wants to push it away and forget. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to uh, last episode when. Mitchell says, well, I wouldn't hurt her. And, like, no, physically, he can't hurt her. But, I mean, emotionally, yeah, I'm surprised George isn't a bit more switched on to, you know, Mitchell's character here. Like, when he's in self-preservation mode, when he's in selfish mode, nothing else matters to him. So I'm, I'm surprised George is close to that. Yeah, so George yeah. is offended by this. Um, no one's defined purely by their past or their condition. Just because we're not normal doesn't mean we can't be normal. I mean, yes, it does, George. <laughs> it really does. In this case, it really does. Uh, George walks into the corridor to be greeted by his housemates. Where have you been? Ventriloquism class. Uh, they spill the truth and George is elated. But soon the twosome becomes a threesome and it leaves George lost for words. Uh, they've invited a woman back for a threesome where one person's not really involved. We've all been there too, right? Right? <laughs> this is such a funny, awkward scene. I love this <laughs> this moment when they're just <laughs> staring at each other awkwardly. <laughs> and then that little that little roar yeah. that Sadie does that and then Mitchell does it back. It's I think, I think it's oh, further it's compounded so by the fact that George is like you're you're just two normal people, happy couple, and it's perfectly normal, normal, normal. 
<laughs> and then she walks Just after, out. like, yeah. clearing the vomit from her face. <laughs> yeah, into the bedroom they go. Sadie pushes him and Annie tries to get a hand somewhere or other. Uh, Annie's brilliant in the scene because there's a lot of little touches like, oh, wow, someone is really horny or lovely bra. <laughs> and when Mitchell flips her over onto her back, she says, oh, there she goes. Uh, but she can feel his heartbeat quicken and vamps, he vamps up and Annie pulls him away just in time. Uh, let's be honest, it was never going to have a happy ending either way, was it? No. And this is, I think, we, we've just had a, an awkward funny moment. This is sort of a, an awkward, hard to watch moment. I have a hard time. It's just so mm. cringeworthy and I, I feel so embarrassed on everyone's behalf. Yeah, I, it goes back to Obviously, if Mitchell and Annie are doing it, that wouldn't happen. Because, exactly. well, firstly, like, <laughs> Annie's not got a heartbeat, she's not got blood, he does, you know, would they ever be compatible anyway like that? That's, I mean, they touch on that later, though. like, how can they be compatible if that's it's such a blurred thing? It's so weird and I mean, I think it's good that they touch on the awkwardness of the relationship. I like, but like I say earlier, it, it it makes us viewers feel a bit awkward and think, well, they're not right for each other. Yeah. So yes, McNair and George are having a chat, and McNair describes Tom as a force of nature and rampant, which sets an alarm off in George's head, and he rushes to the room where he is with Nina. <laughs> Tom is topless. That's how he declares his love, by being topless, clearly. And he says he loves her. Uh, some flowers would have been a bit more helpful, Tom. Uh, George gets defensive. No, I love her. <laughs> Maybe we both love her. And that's why we're a pack. And Nina says, there is no pack. You weren't born a werewolf. Limehead in Cornwall. That's where you disappeared as a baby. They found samples of your blood and hair at the scene. They didn't find a body so assumed you were dead. But they did find your mother and your father. They said it was an animal attack. And if he wasn't born a werewolf, then what does that mean for us? I just feel so bad for Tom in this scene because he's had this sense of security of being told that he'll find this group of people that he'll belong to and that's just been ripped away. Although I also definitely sympathize with McNair that it it was it probably just got harder yeah. and harder to tell him the truth the older that Tom got. Yeah, Tom confronts McNair in the hallway and gets a confession. Uh he was the one that attacked Tom's family. Uh how was I supposed to explain it, Tom? And he asks, What about the pack? And McNair replies, It's just you and me. On a moral grounds and a professional and a very professional grounds, did Nina cross the line here? Because is it her place to tell Tom the truth? I mean, he is an adult. I think if he was a child, it would be different. But he is an adult. And I think telling him the truth gives him a chance to decide whether or not he still wants yeah. to live with McNair. So I think, I think, I think Nina maybe should have just told the truth about what the tests she was doing were. Yeah. 
but I think she's, I don't think, I think it's yeah, okay. The, the mayor would have allowed it though, would he? Yeah. Yeah, and I guess if she told Tom, then Tom definitely would have told McNair. So, yeah, I I think it's I think it's okay. I think it's one thing probably doing the test just to try and, but I guess again it comes down to Nina's conscience. She she wanted to find out the truth, and then she could have told George. Well, you know, he wasn't born a werewolf. I guess her conscience couldn't just leave the truth between her and George. He had to tell Tom because that's who she is in it she's she's righteous and she she wants the truth so she couldn't sit on it i suppose yeah i think it would be much worse if if she found out the truth just to help herself and george and then didn't tell tom but yeah i don't think she would ever do that i think she's she's too much of a a morally morally righteous and it just for, for better or worse, that's who she is, isn't it? Uh, at the camper van in the woods, Tom is about to make his move and say his goodbyes to George and Nina, but they are soon accosted by some weirdly dressed vampires and surrounded. <laughs> and one's yeah. in, a, in a wolf mask, <laughs> right? <laughs> he just wanted to blend in. Um, on the stairs at the house, Mitchell is being all emo and has a heart-to-heart with Annie. She says, who are we kidding with this relationship? We can't do anything that normal couples do. We can't even have we can't have children. We can't have sex. And Mitchell says, thank God. That's not, yeah, what goes down well, doesn't it? That's what sex is to me. It's a weapon. It's never been about love. It's never even been about lust. It's just the blood. But he, he starts crawling again, says, you give me a reason to get control back of my life. I like that he's also wearing a similar shade of grey as she is in this scene. It yeah. just seems like a very specific sartorial choice to have them maybe trying to show that they're they're on the same page and they've had the same realization about their yeah. relationship. Yeah. I like that just detail and I just think it's it's a very sweet scene and I I think it's really nice to see a couple on TV acknowledge that they can still have a relationship without sex and that it's not necessary to their relationship yeah and that here's the paradox he can't hurt annie physically as we we've discussed and so yes he's got used to sex as he knows it which is you know violent bloody whatever but is he also like a bit afraid to learn a new way like is it purely yeah fear in mitchell that he can't just that the whole loving romantic is is alien to him, and he can't, he's he's struggling to open up to that as well. Yeah, I think that's probably part of it. Although I guess with we don't see that much of his relationship no. with Josie, so it's hard to tell what their dynamic was yeah. like as a comparison. Yeah. So, well, and they mentioned Josie. Another another contradiction with the Josie thing is. He didn't kill Josie. Well, no, when they he were did, dating. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. So so that that yeah. suggests that he could do it in the past as you know, it wasn't just about blood mm. and lust. Oh, Josie. Every every time Josie's mentioned there's another yeah. contradiction. <laughs> <laughs> I mean because the implication is that he that she kept him 
sober. So it's not like she was going out no. finding people for him to eat. <laughs> so why, yeah, why didn't yeah. he eat her? <laughs> yeah. Oh, Josie. Caused a lot of troubles. Um, yeah, with this scene, I was... Initially, I remember my feeling watching this scene the first time. I was actually delighted watching this scene because I thought, oh, they're not going to pursue the whole them being a couple thing. But maybe I read that wrong at the time because they're still saying, you know, we are kind of a couple, but we just have to be a couple in our own way. Yeah, yeah. it definitely still feels romantic. Yes. So speaking of conscience... He sadly calls Richard to call off the vamps, but it's a bit too late. Yeah, and then McNair storms in. There's another bit that confuses me a bit. McNair storms in and attacks Mitchell in the living room. And he says to Mitchell, you took him from me. I don't know why he's gone in to Mitchell to say that, because at this stage he doesn't know. They then go to the woods. He doesn't know that Tom's disappeared. And also, right. if anyone's taken Tom from him, it's Nina. Is is it that sort of spidey sense thing that we see that Tom has? It does it does McNair also maybe? Have but that? if if I think maybe. if he was in any way concerned about Tom's whereabouts, he would have gone to the woods first. Yeah, maybe maybe he already maybe he was on his way there and he could just yeah tell that something was wrong, but he didn't investigate. And then his first thought is, oh, it must be the vampire yeah, I just met. Call. So then he goes. To confront to confront Mitchell and then that's a very good call actually because you're talking about spidey sense like Tom had that when McNair was kidnapped in the first episode didn't he so yeah, yeah maybe his first port of call was the vampire did it which is correct <laughs> to be fair he's right <laughs> and yeah. I also like the fact that he stops attacking Mitchell when Annie walks in because he he doesn't want to attack someone in front of a lady. <laughs> Yeah. even though she's a dead lady <laughs> yeah i love when mcnair walks in the way that mitchell reacts and says his name it's like a mixture of surprise but also like yeah. he's greeting McNair. an old friend that just jumped out i had to replay it because it was so funny uh so yeah mitchell whips out that huge steak he's been hiding again uh, <laughs> he's been Where? hiding that from the ladies and offers it back to McNair. You'll be needing this. <laughs> and it gets a huge flare from Manny. Like, where the, where the hell have you been hiding that thing? <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so we then see George, Nina and Tom bundled into a cage surrounded by raucous, baying vampires. And this is the moment, really, where the episode shifts into an extra gear for me. It's taken quite a long time. And all of a sudden, like what I mentioned earlier, it's like a jolt, like a culture shock. And the dog yeah. fights are such a good set piece for for drama. Yeah, yeah, there was obviously references to cage fighting in episode one, but to mm -hmm. it, the fact is, we you know we haven't had Tom up there for like two episodes, so the first time you watch the series, you don't think they're coming back. So then, in this episode, they're back for a whole episode, and also the cage fighting's back. But it's not a really gradual introduction to the cage fighting because immediately we're getting George and Nina bundled into them, which is quite a big thing, really. Yeah. And the fact that 
that Tom is is willing to die yeah. to save Nina is so, he's just yeah. so selfless. Yeah, it's a lovely touch, isn't it? Uh, Richard is the master of ceremonies and they start transforming. Uh, like you say, Tom says, if you want, I could kill you and Nina could kill me before we change. I won't fight back. And if we're talking about wolfy senses, Tom's got those wolfy senses again here because he senses McNair coming in, doesn't he? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's like he just... Although, I mean, maybe he's close enough that he could smell him. I don't know. Uh, He storms in. (laughs) He's holding the Bible, I think, isn't he? Yeah, there's the moment when when McNair holds the Bible yeah. out to Mitchell accidentally and and apologizes. I, I've seen that become oh, a really? meme template on Tumblr. It was really. And I also love another little, <laughs> lovely little quick line from Manny. Ooh, he's quite intense. <laughs> <laughs> and Mitchell also says to McNair, he calls him yeah. Digby. He says, "I got your back, Digby," and that's something that. Seth says, but I wasn't sure to my American ears if there was some slang if the meaning of that I was being missed on me, but I immediately thought, oh, that's the thing that yeah, Seth Digby, would always I'm say. I'm trying to remember what Digby is. I think it's a bit before my time. Um, Digby, yeah, I'm just googling it. Digby, the biggest dog in the world. <laughs> a, a 1973 film. Oh. So there's been like it looks like there's been loads of like different versions of the film over the years, but like, I mean that is a huge dog. He is the biggest dog in the world. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's it's. I think it's like a a subtle insult, really, isn't it? Oh yeah, um, I guess so. I just I I love how they have to end up saving each other to save their loved ones. How the whole episode, Mitchell and McNair have been butting heads, but yeah. they have to come together in this moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're both doing the opposite of what they want to do, but they're doing it because the situation demands it, really. Uh, Mitchell confronts Richard. And he says, you'll pay for this. Retribution is coming from overseas. Uh, Annie tries to open the cage, but can't work out what the chub key is. And I love George's. It's what it says. It's the fat one. <laughs> uh, in all the chaos, Mitchell saves McNair. McNair tells Richard and Annie to lock themselves in the back in the cage, while the three wolves circle them and bang at the cage. Um, oh yeah, also of course, in the, and also in the chaos, McNair kills Richard, and he says he. He keeps telling him that's a that's a good boy, as if he, he has a sort of arrogant sense of superiority, as if he can he can control McNair, and that <laughs> as if he's not gonna tear him into pieces. Um, it just seems like McNair seems to retain more of his cognitive control while that's changing true. compared to the other characters, because he he looks at at Mitchell and knows to not kill Mitchell and knows yeah, to Yeah, and he stalks him quite with, with yeah. intent, doesn't he? He's, you know, he's walking into that bathroom. He's not hobbling about. He's not screaming. He's... But then, yeah, I guess he's he's, he's seasoned at it and he, his little speech earlier about, you know, you come back stronger and all this kind of stuff. He really believes that. So he, he relishes it. Yeah. I mean, I think this whole set piece looks really impressive. The wolves are like pounding round the cage and banging on it, and the shaky camera work, and the, and 
the place your bets by Richard Wells is overpowering everything as well. It's just really effective. Yeah. Do you think that they just made two werewolf suits instead of four? Because I was trying to find a shot where you could see all four of them, and yeah. I couldn't. So I'm assuming that maybe they just had I think that's two. Probably it, yeah. yeah, probably probably two. But I, I just think. Yeah. I mean, there are times, probably especially in series five, where that you see too much of the werewolf suit in the daylight, and you don't need to see it. But when it's yeah. you know lit like this and the shaky camera work and they're pummeling the cage like that it's really like whoa yeah it looks really good i did wonder couldn't annie have rent a ghosted out of there i mean we know we don't they haven't established yet that she can um, rent a ghost with another vampire she could have i guess i guess though she's staying there for mitchell though isn't she <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and we do also know that sometimes she forgets that she could rent a ghost because I think that was what yeah, happened yeah. with the with the Sasha <laughs> episode. She just <laughs> yeah. forgot that she could rent a ghost home. So maybe that's uh, it. <laughs> the next morning, all is restful at the house and Tom makes his leave with McNair on accounts that he can't drive. Uh, Mitchell collars them and he says, we're all square now. After everything, you and me, yeah? And... He says, McNair, again, this is another like one of those standoffs, a bit like earlier. You think one good deed cancels out everything you've done. We may be square, but you'll get yours someday soon. Somebody's going to get you. And this is my favourite moment of the whole episode. He like does the gun motion with his fingers and points it to Mitchell's head. And then the strings yeah. come in, and Richard Wells' <laughs> strings swarm in. Then, then Mitchell looks like properly shattered, like, oh shit. Yeah, I love Mitchell thinking, you know, oh, I'm I'm okay now. I'm they're not going to kill me. Everything's fine and then McNair just completely Yeah, he puts it <laughs> ruins the mood for bang. him. Love it. Just, and also what makes this moment even better, obviously, like we can get the cut away to that wheelchair and like a babbling man like Oh yeah. I just, I always remember the first time watching this bit going, "Oh my god." And then it just kind of scans up a bit and it's like it's fucking herrick <laughs> that's amazing such a good cliffhanger i feel like they don't do kind of big cliffhangers a lot of the time at the end of episodes but i think oh, this has to be oh one i of love the best. this literally the last probably 10 minutes of this episode i do really love also it's worth noticing i know they explain that the the wolves didn't attack each other they kind of just stayed their distance from each other which i guess it we can explain that with george and nina because you know <laughs> we know what they get up to we know what they get up to and george <laughs> and mitchell had to watch that <laughs> but uh yeah tom was reserved as well and mcnair yeah, I think I, I would have liked to just see them maybe covered in some scratches or yeah. something the morning after. It just seems like there would have been some, at least some just playing around, you know, play yeah, fighting. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Like, a bit too neat, maybe. But And I also think because they were so worried about potentially killing each other in the cage, it, it's kind of weird how then it's 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 a non-issue once they're all with each other outside of the cage because they were so you know tom was willing to die to save nina 
But then we see, oh, mm-hmm. they can actually get along. But maybe it just would have been worse if if it was just Tom instead of yeah. Tom and McNair. That's I don't true. know. Oh, do you think that Emma survived? Because oh, yeah. she just <laughs> runs away. And then we never see her again. So I'm I, not quite sure I'm what, gonna guess she what happened away. to her. Yeah, because we, did, we didn't see it. And, you know, she... She she seemed like a nice woman, just with the wrong man. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, there was lots of I think there I... was lots of beheading and stuff oh, like no, neck ahead. cracking and stuff and all, all that. <laughs> yeah, and all that fallout, wasn't there? I think I would have liked to have seen maybe some Annie powers too, because I mean, there's that line that that McNair says where he doesn't want her to come, and she says, "Well, I'm already dead." But really, isn't she the most powerful of any of them? From what we've seen in season seasons one and two, couldn't she use some ghost uh, powers, possibly? Yeah, she didn't start throwing people around, did she? But then I guess, again, no. we can go back to the fear element that she's, yeah, panicking. Yeah. <laughs> I guess she's she's just focused on getting the, the key chub, yeah. to open the cage. <laughs> Every time that line. <laughs> With the chub. Be- Many thanks to Ruby for coming on the podcast for the first time. Just a couple of little notes from the afterlife to wrap things up. I guess, thinking about it, the whole Nina telling Tom about his past, I guess this is an early sign that Nina is starting to go by supernatural rules, whereas she's always been so steadfast in her belief that justice and truth are right she understands that she's living under different terms now and different rules so she's kind of tweaking those a little bit and we get a bit of that in the longest day i'm sure we'll discuss that in the longest day in the next episode that she starts manipulating things to protect herself and protect russell russell fucking to protect george and if we're talking about self-preservation, it's certainly not of the level of Mitchell, but it's it's starting to kick in the self-preservation mode, especially now she's going to become a mother. Now, Josie. Oh, Josie. Uh, I've been thinking about this as well when I was editing that episode. It's so frustrating because both versions of Josie are such good characters. And yet... Everything around it is problematic from the initial story that we get about their first meeting, what doesn't prove to be true. The fact that in the modern times, Josie doesn't remember Herrick, who literally invaded their house, her house. And obviously, if she did have a relationship with Mitchell, she would have known about what was going on with the vampires and Herrick in particular. And also we get to this story with Mitchell where he's saying that he can't do love in a romantic sense because sex is just physical and bloodlust and violence. Yet everything we're hinted at tells us that his relationship with Josie was romantic. I mean, they... It could have been an asexual relationship. They could have not had sex, but I I don't think that's what's been hinted at in previous episodes of the show. So that doesn't quite match up either. 
And also, yeah, I guess we'll get to it at the end of the series when Mitchell says to Annie, you're the love of my life. I mean, it's a common thing in the fandom, but no, like Josie was the love of your life, really. So, it, it, I mean, there's four things alone just off the top of my head that just don't quite match up with Josie. In terms of the storyline, we could have had Josie appear in season one like she does and it just be an ex from the past who was very in love with. And we could have had the looking glass where it was just another woman. Exactly the same things happen and it was just another person, not Josie. We could have really gone through that and not had this confusion and entanglement of what's going on there. So I'm going to put it out there that I think Josie is probably the most problematic character in being human, purely for those reasons. Uh, if you've got another problematic character, let me know. Uh, boxtunnelpod at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at boxtunnelpod. Instagram and Facebook, the Box Tunnel Survivors Group. You can donate money just to help out with the running costs. Any amount you like. It could be a pound, three pound, five pounds. It is greatly appreciated and it does help running the costs of the pod. That is coffee.com forward slash box tunnel pod. And I'll put a link in the show notes for that as well. So let's sign out as we sign in with Dog Scratch Deer by Henry's Funeral Shoe. Until next time. Someday soon, somebody's going to get you. Bang. was the box tunnel podcast and thank